to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to the Hartman Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. Today, we're joined by Pastor Brian Sauvey. He's the pastor of Refuge Church in Ogden, Utah. And he is the husband of one wife, the father. Brian, you have four children. Is that right? Four kids. Yep. Four kids. I feel like being in Utah, we have to clarify that you have only one wife. Just one. That's right. Just the one. Brian, you got a couple of places online where people can follow along and read your stuff, including your tweets. How's the best way to get a hold of you and read what you've been writing? Well, the two places that I spend the most time, I'm on Twitter quite a bit, uh, at Brian, B-R-I-A-N underscore S-A-U-V-E. Uh, if I write something on my blog, it's com. I'll, I'll link it there. So that's a good place to keep up with me. Awesome. Yeah, and I just encourage you guys, uh, especially on Twitter, Brian is a great follow, lots of insight. So, Brian, we'll get started. I want to talk about the Rona. The church response has been very interesting, I think, uh, but I'd like to get your take. It seems to me there's been a lot of silence from the church. I mean, we're, what, two months in? I think now people are starting to respond a little bit. But were you surprised at all by how quiet the church was? Uh, you know, it's kind of like any time you get, it does, It almost doesn't matter what the judgment or trial or difficulty is. It's just going to reveal things that were that were already there under the surface. Whether you, they were, it's not like the, the coronavirus, you know, invented a lot of issues for the church. It really revealed and tested the, the character and nature of the work that was already being done. Uh, so for those like pastors and churches that had already had a, a robust cultural engagement, uh, theologically maximalist kind of view of life and ministry that were speaking to all areas of life and preaching applicationally and, you know, kind of helping people navigate politics and home and marriage and anthropology those churches and pastors like didn't miss a beat. I saw a lot of them real quickly. They maybe didn't know exactly what to do right away. And they hadn't, they needed to figure out some of the, the facts, what was actually true and what was not true, but they were pretty quick to uh, speak into the issue with biblical principles. And, uh, and at the same time, you had churches that had a more theologically minimalist view or uh, or minimalist philosophy of ministry. And I think that showed, you know, that proved out as well. So in some ways it was surprising and in some ways it was probably predictable. Right. What ended up happening. Now I'm curious in your church, how have you guys addressed the issue? How do you address it with your congregation? And in particular, I know one of the things that we've seen is there's a lot of people who are saying, well, why don't we just obey um, and then, and then, you know, we get into the topic of that you've addressed, which is, I guess, sort of statism. So just curious, pastorally, how have you been able to navigate those waters and what is the messaging like? Yeah. So I, right away when we, st- when, when this started to emerge as being a national or global issue, we got the elders together and we had just quite a few long meetings and when we prayed and we talked. And trying to get our heads around, because really there are two levels as pastors 
that you have to deal with something like this, you have to establish what you know and what you don't know. Um, because obviously there's a, in the correct pastoral response to something like the, the Black Death, you know, or maybe one of the, the, the Middle Eastern SARS strains that were 80% mortality rates, things like that. And something that maybe is in, for, you know, the seasonal flu that we deal with every year. So we were really trying to figure out who are we going to, knowing that media outlets are not neutral, that they all, that science isn't neutral, medicine's not neutral, but, you know, everybody is coming to these issues with an agenda and a worldview. What are the facts? And then what principles, pastoral theology, what biblical principles are coming into play for how we relate as a local church to those facts? And at first, when it was pretty unclear for a, for a and when our, our governor, uh, our state actually never issued like a stay-at-home order. They gave recommendations and left it to local municipalities, things like that. So at first, we did suspend our corporate gatherings for a few weeks, and we tried to wait and see, you know, is this, what kind of issue is this? But then as the, the data became more and more clear that it was, not really towards the Middle Eastern SARS, kind of 80% or really high mortality rate and, and drifting more and more towards a seasonal, and I'm not an epidemiologist, whatever, you know, but towards more of a seasonal flu sort of thing, maybe a more serious or specific to age and risk categories. Then we reinstated worship um, with some um, preventative measures or what, whatever you want to call it. Um, but pastoring the people through that, that brought up lots of conversations with people. Um, and it became clear pretty quickly that even though we do talk quite a bit about uh, a theology and philosophy, Christian philosophy of politics, fear sovereignty, we talk about that all the time in sermons and podcasts and counseling. It became clear we need to talk more about this. We've got people who are angry or confused about that decision to start meeting again. Uh, and so we we had to be on the phone a lot. We had to you know, have a lot of those conversations about where the the authority of the state begins and ends. And uh, it was interesting. I haven't. I'll say that I haven't had such a uh, a chewing out from uh, uh, someone in the church like like over this issue before of people who disagreed. So it it got you know this, this gets heated for people for sure. Yeah, wow. Some great points. One of the questions that I've had, I was reading this, this was Toby Sumter today. Um, he had an article and he said this, he said, Christians should be at the forefront of discerning what God is up to in all of the corona crazy. And one of the things that struck me, I, I think that's true. I think you'd probably agree. But again, going back to like big evangelicalism, I I haven't really seen the church at the forefront. I think a lot of smaller churches, like you said, faithful. What do you think's going on in the mainstream that, you know, it just seems like they don't want to address that issue. Yeah, man. Again, a principle that just proves that over and over is that calamities and trials and judgment, they tend to reveal what has already been true whether that's a person or an institution or family, a church, whatever it is, uh, trial is an unmasking of, of weakness or strength, not the creator of weakness or strength. 
right? Like an earthquake, it shows you which contractors were doing good work and which were cutting corners uh, already. Those foundations were already the way they are before the earthquake hit. So when we look at institutions, big, big EVA, that kind of thing, that are being very, very cautious or very much uh, like one-dimensional in the way they approach something like Romans 13, 1 through 7, uh, I think that one of the fundamental issues, even though there are many, it is that we can tend, and, and big evangelicalism tends to have a vision for local church success and pastoral success that looks like uh, bigness, right? And like mere bigness, mere size, and and use success, mission, like you're, you're missionally successful if you have a lot of people very quickly in your church. And if that's your target, if that's the pastoral target you're trying to hit in shepherding people, you are going to be very, very slow to lean into what might be controversial. You're going to be much more likely to, to have problem passages and to have uh, a lot of trepidation for saying something like, hey, maybe a big issue in, in, the, in North America today is that many people worship the state as a god. And, and that shows in, because look, we send our kids to them to be educated by them. We let them, we let them meddle in every sphere. We, we basically turn to the state as a father figure. And that's obviously extraordinarily controversial. And if your goal is to have a big church, you just won't talk like that very readily, especially publicly. And I think this just proved that out. It showed the nature of the goals of, of a lot of institutions and their definitions of success. Yeah, I I think that's a great take. And I think the other thing it's done for pastors and elders in this time, it kind of forces you to lay your cards on the table. And so you kind of, you get to see like, is a guy going to address this head on and take on the unpopular, you know, the unpopular truths? Um, Is he going to preach on Romans 13 and be faithful to that text? Are you going to preach on Daniel and the other people in scripture who actually, you know, we have this really cool record in scripture of opposing tyranny. Um, and it does, it just forces you to put your cards on the table in a way that, that, you know, most of the time you don't have to do. Yeah, absolutely. There's two things that I want to address kind of speaking of that, um, get your take on this as a pastor. Uh, one of the things that struck me is we sort of live in this culture where politics and like the Fox news, CNN Uh, talking points. They drive so much of our public discourse. But one thing I noticed in this scenario was Christians, we we sort of come up with these like catchphrases, talking points. We haven't thought them through. And then we just apply them across the board. And so there's two that I want to ask you about. Number one, of course, was the love thy neighbor. Now this got It got misapplied in a lot of ways. One of those was I had a lot of people saying to me, well, love your neighbor. That means you need to embrace the shutdown, always wear a mask, whether or not it makes sense, and be willing to close your church. What's wrong about that sort of take? Mm. (laughs) Several things. And one of the most foundational things that's wrong with applying love thy neighbor in that kind of one-dimensional way is that you are tacitly assuming that all of the places where you're getting the information uh, uh, are neutral, like that science is neutral. 
that the medical institutions are neutral, that they're just, they're just coming up. They're basically investigating in a neutral way and discovering neutral facts. And there are these, there's this body of information that we can all agree is definitely true. Right. And so it, it, for example, it's definitely true that social distancing is the best way to reduce transmission of what the, of the coronavirus. Uh, it's definitely true that churches are a particularly high transmission environment. And you can fill in the blank with a million of these conclusions. And the problem is that the science isn't neutral and people have agendas. And if you're going to approach any issue where you're relating to public health, public science, you have to understand that the people who are, that are platformed nationally, they have massive agendas. They're operating under huge presupposition. And we have to be willing to test them and be cunning in how we relate to even vetting their claims. You know? So if one thing that, that showed up in the coronavirus issue was that, uh, you know, pretty early on, the models that were pre predicting and projecting, they pretty immediately, I mean, they fell apart almost immediately within weeks of coming out. And if you had just adopted that, oh, science is absolute, science is, it, it speaks with the authority, it's, it's fiat new stuff, it's breathed out by God, you know, in Eric, then you have a problem there. <laughs> you know, you have to, but we, we're Christians. We know that, that, this is, that those things are neutral, that people have agendas, that people are mistaken. And so loving your neighbor has to be, we have to admit that this is more complex sometimes than it seems at first. And that the, the only, there's more than just the factor of preventing, you know, people have assumed with that statement that the best possible thing to do for the, for the, uh, for, for people is to limit the transmission of this virus period, no matter what it takes. Well, let's think about that. Is that true? Is that the best way to love all of our neighbors? And if we think through that, honestly, well, then we might come to different conclusions. Um, but if you just use it as kind of a, a bludgeon, <laughs> then to, to stop that conversation from even happening, then that just shows me you're not really concerned about loving your neighbor. You've already come to a conclusion about what people ought to do and you're trying to leverage some verses in the Bible to justify your conclusion. Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a really good point. And I, I think the other point to be made is that the scripture has a lot to say about what it means to love your neighbor. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people who are using that term, love your neighbor, you're not willing to look at, you know, for instance, look at the second table of the law, the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. which is love to neighbor. Let's examine those. Um, one of them is, you know, obeying and submitting to proper authority and also opposing it when it's wicked. Yeah. So, you know, but but nobody wanted to go there. And so, like you said, it, it sort of becomes this unthinking. I'm just going to slap this verse on it and then you have to do it. Yeah. You someone I saw an exchange on some social media platform with uh, some people I just personally know, not a big name or anything like that. Someone had posted an article like, you know, love your neighbor, wear a mask. And the, the person pushed back and basically said, so are you saying that it's, that it's a sin not to wear a mask? 
And and you could tell when you when the person bottom lined it like that that the the, the the person who posted the article kind of realized, oh man, I've made a claim about the law of God essentially. And right. I'm going to try. They, they had a hard time admitting that. They were like, well, no, I'm just saying love your neighbor. And they're like, well, is it a sin not to love your neighbor? Like, obviously, Paul in Galatians sums up the whole law with the love of neighbor. Even, he didn't even mention loving the Lord your God with all your heart. So, obviously, if you're saying that in order to love your neighbor, you must, you know, follow X health policy, you are saying that everybody who doesn't is in sin. And that's a serious thing. If we want to talk about legalism, Legalism is saying thou shalt when God doesn't say thou shalt or thou shalt not when he doesn't say thou shalt not uh, on a very basic level. So there's a lot of legalism right now that's going on in what should be a category of wisdom, you know, a category of where disagreement is possible about the efficacy of math and the use of math. And we can we can we what we want often is to make any issue into a black or white. You must do this. But we need to be careful that we're not putting words into the mouth of God, that, that, that is legalism, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's a helpful distinction between a sin obedience issue and a wisdom issue. Now, the second question I have, this has kind of been the other popular one. Some people have addressed it and done a pretty good job of that. But Romans 13, um, I've talked to elders and churches even who've, who've said to me things like this. I know the masks are stupid. I know the rules are stupid. I know that they don't make sense, but we still need to obey state. Now, it's going to depend on what those issues are. How how should a Christian process all those issues through Romans 13? And does Romans 13 mean I have to obey the state at all costs at all times? <laughs> right. And clearly, almost nobody seriously takes that position, right? Almost nobody seriously takes, I mean, I can think of one person I've ever actually talked to that said that, that said, you, it doesn't matter. Paul wrote this when, you know, Roman emperors were evil. And so it, whatever level of evil, you better do it. I'm like, no, nah. because clearly if we, you know, if we look in scripture, we see it in the book of Acts, we must obey men rather than God. We see Daniel defying clearly mandated state. And, and even think about Daniel's order not to pray. Well, they were targeting Yahweh worship, any god. You know, you weren't allowed to pray to any god other than uh, other than the the king. And it's like so. Obviously, all of us or most of us have a a, a, a category for there is the there is an obvious any authority structure that God builds into the world. He has responsibilities for that sphere of authority and also limits. So, a, a, wives are to submit to their own husbands. And he has real authority in his home, uh, patriarchy, father rule in a home. And yet, my wife is not obligated to obey any husband. There's a there's a limit there with the responsibilities. So, one of the things that I think is, if you're in America, in the USA, that gets lost really quickly in this discussion is that the uh, we happen to live in a, a constitutional republic where it is absolutely possible for a local or a state or a federal ruler to tell you to do something that is illegal for them to tell you to do. And you are not obligated to obey them, legally not obligated. And the, the judges are supposed to you know, sort this out after the fact. But for us, 
when an executive gives an order that is clearly unlawful, like, again, the Constitution is not written uh, to only be able to be understood by experts. It wasn't framed that way. It was for, it's supposed to be our document. Uh, and so when a local ruler says, you must do this, I'm actually upholding Romans 13, 1 through 7, if I disobey that command, if that command is unlawful. I'm saying, actually, I'm going to follow the law and not obey you because your instruction is itself an illegal instruction. And, and that's a category built into, obviously, our system came from an English common law system built, basically built by Christendom that, that stretches back to Moses and the Ten Commandments. Right. And so those are good principles that we, we need to make sure that we don't give those up in a kind of glib, well, Romans 13 means unthinking obedience. Romans 13 means we should be a lawful people. It means that we should respect and honor authority, that we should be praying for our rulers to judge justly, but also that we need to love our neighbors by making sure that our rulers don't become lawbreakers and uphold their lawbreaking by, you know, this kind of unthinking support. Yeah, and it's interesting because in Romans 13, there's a requirement and a responsibility to hold the magistrate responsible, right? According to the word of God, this is how you're supposed to rule. Absolutely. And that's kind of one area I, I've seen some people do that. I've seen, of course, Matt Truella. Um, they're big on sphere of sovereignty. They've been doing that and I think doing a really good job of it. Uh, but definitely something that's lacking in the church overall. Yeah, we, we've been really encouraging people in our fellowship to read Matt Truella's Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates and an older book, James M. Wilson's book on Romans 13, 1 through 7 which is, I think it's like against unlimited uh, obedience to civil, something like that. But it's just an exposition of those verses. Well, it kind of ties in, Brian, to one of your tweets. I'm going to read a few of these to you and kind of get an explanation from you. Um, first, first tweet was this one. Uh, COVID-19 is a perfect judgment. We are being given over to the gods. We set up in executive high office places. We worship the Demiurge state thinking it would give us security, and it has instead enslaved us. But remember, the true God laughs as the fake gods plot and rage. What did you mean by that? We had just as a church, uh, when I jotted down the thoughts of that tweet, been singing either Psalm 110 or Psalm 2. And obviously those two, if you're, if you're familiar with those psalms, they tie together. Psalm 2 is this uh, warning at the end of it to the kings of earth because this divine king kissed the sun lest you perish along the way. And then in Psalm 110, we see the Lord Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. The Father's putting all his enemies under his feet. And clearly, 1 Corinthians 15, the book of Hebrews, this is, this is the Lord Jesus ruling after his ascension and enthronement post-cross. So this is a warning to the kings of the earth that they need to obey God serve as ministers of the good, Romans 13, 1 through 7, you know, using not their own definition of the good, but, but the actual definition of the good, which is God's definition, and punishing the wrongdoer. But that got me thinking about some of the ways that are, whether local leaders in many places in America, we have a literal tyranny where executives are issuing unlawful orders, wicked decrees, that sort of thing. And, and, and I was thinking they should be you know, they should be worried because Jesus is not going to hold that lightly when they give an account. But then I thought, hang on, that's, that's a judgment of us because 
We elected those people. We said if they're acting like little gods on their own little, uh, you know, Mount Sinai, issuing their own new decrees of what is the good, it's because we look to them as gods. We elected them. We wanted this, right? People in America are functionally statist, where they they really want the governing authorities to expand into all other areas of authority, take all of the responsibilities from every other area of authority, self family, church, they want to absorb all those and function as a God. And the, the reason that they're doing that is because we are an idolatrous people and we want that. We don't want to take responsibility. We don't want to worship the true God. We don't want freedom because freedom is found in being mastered by the true God and worshiping him alone. We want to be comfortable slaves. But what this reveals is the folly of idolatry. Because idolatry always promises freedom, and it always enslaves you. We've worshipped uh, the gods of statism, and so we've set those gods up in their executive office high places, and so we are being given over to in judgment to them. Okay, here are your gods. Let them rule you and see if you're free. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying, but that's, ex- I think, exactly what's going on and playing out across, not just the nation, across the world. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic point. And you actually see this throughout the Old Testament, both in, right, the people of God crying out for a king like the world. And so God basically says, okay, well, you're going to get that. And when your sons are being conscripted for war and all this stuff, and you're being taxed heavily, then you're going to think twice. But I also think you mentioned the idolatrous side of it. And this comes up a lot in the prophets where God will essentially tell the people, you know, you've had this whoring, adulterous relationship. And he'll say to them, well, where's your whore girlfriend now? You know, he kind of he turns them over and he says, okay, this is what you wanted. Is, is that adulterous idol, is it rescuing you? Yeah, men who will not. If you think about the way that the, the authority structures that God built into the world stack up and work together when they're functioning at the intended, Men are governing themselves. And so instead of being like a city without walls that's easily plundered, they are self-controlled. And so they have walls. And, and so they're not ruled by their enemies. And so they rule their families well. And they teach their sons and daughters to do the same. And so they, you know, when they gather in churches, they elect qualified elders who rule and worship the true and living God. And so we have people in a, in a church that's free, being ruled by qualified elders. And as those people, you know, you send that into the size of the nation and they establish justice and, and limited uh, spheres of authority. For which you see how all these stack up. If, if at every level, the worship of God is happening, the true God, then you just have freedom on all these levels. Even within rule and authority structures, you still have freedom. And, and you just... You cannot. It's an impossibility. It's like water running uphill to worship idols and have freedom. You just can't. It is an impossibility. Over time, idolatry will enslave and prove out every single time on every level of human government. And that's what we're seeing right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, as you said, we're seeing it globally. Uh, our, our pastor here locally, uh, he was recalling a conversation that Francis Schaefer had with R.C. Sproul. And I think this was just before Schaefer died, 
But Sproul asked him, what's the greatest danger facing the American church? And he, Schaefer responded without hesitation. He said statism. <clears throat> it also made me think of a couple of years ago, Obama gave a State of the Union. And I remember thinking I was shocked because he he said the government's going to do this. And then he listed everything. And it was like every sphere of life. They were trying to claim authority, education, vaccines. So like your children's health, um, what they're eating for lunch, what you're eating, your health. So just every sphere under the sun, we, we should be saying these things belong to God and he's established appropriate spheres of authority. And instead, the government and the state is saying we're going to rule everything. In America, at least in our commonwealth. That is a result of it's a one to one result of our own idolatry because we elected these people. We if they're doing that, it's because we want them to, right? So we we have like if we're going to do corporate confession of sin on the nation, like Nehemiah standing and confessing, you know, Isaiah confessing for the people. It's like the sanctuary is polluted with statism, and so of course the government is assuming godlike responsibility. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, I want to switch gears now. We've got uh, two more tweets I want to ask you about. We'll hit these. Um, the first one, you said this. You said, read accounts of Jews in Europe in the pre-World War II years. Read accounts of the Cambodians under the Khmer Rouge. Walk Auschwitz or Security Prison 21. Make eye contact with the evil of passive citizens and the deified state. Then you've got to hashtag your daily legalism. What are you driving at in this tweet? Yeah. So first of all, just so nobody thinks I'm actually like want this legalism, that is a tongue-in-cheek hashtag I use to kind of mock the idea that any moral instruction is legalism. But that tweet is, as we were going through this whole thing and it's revealing statism even to a new degree, uh, I thought back to state, prison, state security prison 21 in Cambodia which is, if you're not familiar, it's kind of like a, a, a genocide that took place with Pol Pot. And uh, I had the opportunity to go there at one point when I was a teenager and walk through the museum they have there now. And there's like still blood on the wall. There's torture devices. Um, we, we lived in England and, and got to travel through Europe as, as kids as well. So saw some of the concentration camps from World War II. And what struck me... Uh, maybe a week ago when I tweeted that, is that um, statism and idolatry does not have breaks. Like, it, it just, any kind of idolatry, its goal is, just like any worship, it's to have all, it's, it's for you to be presented as a whole burnt offering, a living sacrifice to the God. And so if, you, if we think that we can safely worship the idol of state, and have it stop somewhere like this. It'll stop at, you know, universal health care. And, and then it'll stop there. It'll stop at redefining marriage in a birch belt. It'll, you, we're deluded if we think that because that's not how idolatry works. And you see that in completely different types of scenarios with, you know, Nazism uh, and Pol Pot with China kind of communism. Those are not identical movements, but they were both fundamentally state worship. And the result was that they ended up asking for the whole citizenry, millions of people, to be presented as whole burnt offerings. So we need to take that as a warning 
that if we don't turn in repentance and worship God, that we will, you know, we, our God's will, the gods that we elect instead, like they will require all of us. They won't stop. Yeah, what a, what a fascinating point. Um, and even that our politics are fundamentally a religious, right? It's all connected, right? It, it's not an irreligious decision. We, we can, we can rein in our gods after, you know, they're on a leash, really. We can rein them in after they do for us what we want them to. And, and it, it, it's, it's, I, I was reading a book on, uh, the monument men during World War II who were tasked with preserving the cultural heritage and art of Europe through the war. And they recounted this local city that was through the 30s, before, uh, before World War II began, there were these, incre- most people know this, there are increasingly draconian laws against ethnic Jews, that you can't own a business now. Okay, now you can't uh, own property. Now you can't own, you know. And it was, it was exactly that. People thought, well, we can, we can keep this on a leash. We can, keep, we can let the gods do what we want them to. And then we'll take back over, and and God would have us see, like, no, you can't worship Molech without Molech consuming you. You just can't do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's gonna it's gonna require your whole person. Well, Brian, I want to. This is the last thing that I want to talk about. This is a tweet. I think it kind of it puts us in a helpful position. Um, and I'll read it, and then I can kind of explain what I mean. You said a coat of paint. And you're you're retweeting Michael Foster, by the way. A coat of paint is easy, burning something down is easy, running away is easy, but rebuilding and reform is not. But it's worth it if the cause is worthy. So what I have in mind with this is, look, we can all look at the church and we can say this is a problem. I think especially in the reform camp, we can say, look, there's statism, there's definite idol worship. But how do we do something positive? How do we build something positive in the wake of this? Uh, again, Toby Sumter today was talking about, um, you know, using this moment in sort of a Eucharistic way to say, God's going to bring good out of this. So how as how a church, how do we do that? Yeah, man, this is this is the question, because it is so easy. And this is, I, I really appreciate this, that Michael Foster makes this point in lots of different ways, frequently. But it's really easy to see and be a critic, right? That's easy. And before I was a pastor, pastor and real people, I I thought much more highly of myself <laughs> in terms of my ability. Like, oh, look at all these, you know, they, if they would just know what I knew, then they could know it. And then you start leading people and you realize that it's not just about having a good argument. It's not just about knowing the problem. You have to actually, A, know how to rule yourself and get your house in order. Like First Timothy 3, verse 4 or 5. Uh, the the fruit of man bears at home will be the fruit he bears in the church. But that's very hard. And then not only that, you have to win people. Because if people are statists in your churches, even if this is an idol issue, just telling them that, it doesn't lead to automatic reformation. It, you can easily just drive people completely out of your church. But what we have to do if we're going to change things is the hard work of reformation. We have to win the hearts of people uh, so that we can hopefully, it, from whatever spheres of authority we have, whether you're just a father in your home, winning your wife, winning your friends, winning the hearts of your kids, yeah, like Proverbs 23, 26, my son, give me your heart so that he loves the law. He loves the law of his father. 
as a pastor so that the people, you have their heart. And, and so they know these aren't just laws to follow, like don't be a statist. But no, this is for my good. This pastor loves me. He cares about me and my family. He wants us to flourish. So, you know, it's easy to lob bombs and throw and blow things up. It's easy to pretend like everything's better, just slap a coat of paint on stuff, change the website so our doctrinal statement says we're not statists or whatever. What's really hard is to build something real. And and, and it's only possible, it's only possible because Jesus actually is Lord. And he really does give new hearts with the law inscribed on it and put his spirit in people and cause them to walk in his ways. So we need to lean into the regular means of grace that God has established. Nothing sexy or new. We don't need 15 new institutions. We don't need, you know, a bunch of rebel 25-year-olds running around thinking they're going to fix everything. What we need are for faithful Christian men who will reclaim this, these old paths that our forefathers knew of, knew of and walked in and, and that we've drifted from in idolatry over some centuries and live them out faithfully in our homes as pastors live them out faithfully. And over the long haul, if we do that hard, long slogging work, then God delights to bless that. He delight, and, and along the way, it, it's really easy to get bogged down in losing people because people are going to be mad as you call out their idols. Even if you do it lovingly and faithfully and pastorally, people are going to be mad. You have to worship God and not their approval. And that goes for the home, the, the church, the state, everything. You have to worship God, not people, live for God's approval, not theirs, and then get to work. And as we do that, <laughs> I'm, I'm post-millennial, so I, I actually believe this. As we do that, uh, then God will, he will disciple the nation. He, he will bring people to obedience to him. He will cleanse his, his house. Judgment begins with the house of God. He will cleanse his house. Uh, we will see God uh, establish the river flowing out of the temple of God that gets deeper the, the further downstream you go. But it's going to take work, not talk. And I think it, it brings up a good point, and maybe th- there will be pastors who are listening to this and they're saying, look, I want to address these issues. Um, maybe I haven't known how, but this is really encouraging. I think, like, what... I want to get your take on this, but I think of something that our baseball coach said in high school, which was, look, dude, we need to fix your swing. But as soon as we start making changes, it's going to get worse first. And I kind of think of it with the church right now, like these issues have to be addressed. But like if you preach on this, man, like your church is probably going to shrink. So you start preaching on pulling your kids out of public education. Like you just went after the golden calf, you know? So what do you say to that pastor? Maybe, maybe he adds to the conviction, but sort of lacking courage. What would you tell him? Mm, man, I would, I would tell them that I deeply, deeply feel the pain <laughs> of uh, hatred and people's, you know, abject rejection of you who, who once called you a pastor and once seemed to respect you on some level. Um, the last two or three years of pastoring have been very difficult years of pastoring Um, because of these things, very difficult because starting to, by the grace of God, see some idols in the church 
and address them and repent of my own issues and philosophy of ministry issues that, that maybe I'd inherited or been mentored in, when that's not real gospel centrality, you know, all those things. I would say first, you're, you're not alone. There are lots of men who are, by God's grace right now, beginning to see and, and repent and work to recover these things. Uh, but the fundamental issue that you have to keep in mind is that the, 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 the core sin issue of the Pharisees was, according to Christ, who saw people's heart, was that they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So if you are going to be a good pastor, whether we're talking about reforming anything in the church, just being a good pastor, you have to repent continually, confess and repent continually, a love for the glory of people and the approval of people. And remember that, you know, our brother Peter in 1 Peter 5, <laughs> to his fellow elders, he says, look, cast your anxieties on the Lord. He cares for you. You're going to receive the unfading crown of glory and pastor for that. Pastor for God's approval and, and love the people. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a revolutionary kind of jerk. You know, read Doug Wilson's rules for reformers to start with, but you need to know that people are not going to like you. And you need to remember that it is positively good for you to be disliked. It is positive. If you're telling people to repent of their idolatry, begin by repenting of yours and be willing to be disliked. And I'm preaching to myself right now. This is a weekly struggle and battle as a pastor who, you know, if you're trying to preach applicationally and reform, <laughs> you're, you're just going to be disliked. And you have to, you have to begin with that. I'm okay with that. Yeah. I think that is a phenomenal point. You know, one other thing really quick, it just came to mind. Um, a, a huge ditch for men and pastors, whether that's a father or a pastor who starts to see these things, is you really need to fight the urge to be a partisan, um, like, sycophant, or um, you need to fight the urge to become the guy that just is unteachable, uncorrectable, and divides from everybody and then anathematizes everybody over any disagreement. Like, we, we kind of have to be... That's a streak, a streak that can run in reformers is this kind of, well, I can't partner with anybody unless they agree with me on every single point of doctrine, period. You've got, you, you, we have to fight that. That's, a, that's an issue of idolatry as well. Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal point. Well, the last thing I want to address, Brian, and just a, a quick application is for the guy in the pew. If you're discouraged about what's going on, what should you do? How can a single guy, the married guy, whatever it is, he's in charge of his family. How can he be faithful in this time? Yeah. And that's a, that's a great question. Cause that's most, most people, honestly, are going to fall in that category where they're, they're part of a, a church. Maybe they're not super excited about the state of it. And, and so, like you said, there's lots of particulars that are going to change how you respond, but some good trusty general principles is that A, you, you need to start, repentance needs to start with you. You only have responsibility first to repent for yourself. You can't go in, like before you go and burn down your church and write the angry Facebook post against your pastors, start by repenting in your home. You know, talk, whatever you need to do, build something first, right? Build an obedient household first. and. And I'm not saying that nobody should ever leave a church or seek other fellowship or, or any or, or talk to their pastor about theological issues. But I am saying if you do that without first dealing with your own house, then 
you know, you're, you're becoming twice the son of hell. <laughs> you're just, you're a clanging gong. No, we can't hear you because you're a hypocrite. We need to start there. That's really hard to do, but it's very hard to do. Um, and I would say along those lines, we need to be the humble men, which doesn't mean cowardly or feminine men. It means that we are secure, right? That we, we know who the Lord is. We know that we worship God. We can be humble, um, direct, plain speaking, and from that humility, be willing to directly address issues with plain talk to the party involved, whether that's your pastors, your, you know, whatever it is. We need to, we need to deal with our issues Christianly. Uh, it, it, and if you start doing that, then I think there are some concentric circle principles that you can begin to, you know, walk in, make some, make some uh, issues that you are convinced in your own mind are non-negotiables for my the church I want to raise my children in. And if your church, you know, talk with your pastors humbly, be teachable, uh, see if they're willing to, if there are issues, see if they're willing to hear you, and maybe even change or whatever. But if you really come to that point where in your local fellowship, some of those issues that, you know, maybe they're issues like some big E on the I chart type of issues are like, if, if they have women pastors, I can't trust you to teach the Bible if you can't figure that out, you know, um, those sorts of things. But maybe there's some, okay, my church doesn't sing the psalm. Well, Paul says to sing the psalms. Maybe we talk to our church about that. Uh, and once you identify those, I, I do think that it is okay for you to, if necessary, to seek other fellowship, because it is serious. You are telling your sons and your daughters, these are the men and women I want you to look like when you fellowship with a local church and an eldership. Um, and as you, you see, I'm kind of working out, you know, self, family, church, and, and just be willing to take the long view on all this and uh, to be a, a jovial kind of re- reformer. But Doug Wilson, he would have burned out long ago and no one would listen to him if he weren't so dang jovial, you know? <laughs> like that guy, he is just joyful. And uh, that that's a potent thing to just be guarded in the joy of the Lord as you go throughout. You know, reform with a smile. Don't be a jerk. Love the Lord. And you really can't go wrong. God, God will be faithful to supply what you need as a man and a, a family man and a churchman. If you walk faithfully in those things, I'm convinced you'll provide. Yeah, I think that is a, a phenomenal outlook. And like Doug, too, being jovial and, and taking the long view. Um, one of the things I've thought in this situation is, look, this is not all of this has not happened because we had a problem yesterday and it's manifesting today. You know, we're like 30 years downstream from stuff. So if you want to make changes that you got to look at who's in diapers in your house, you know, that sort of, and what are their kids going to be like? So this kind of picture of generational covenant faithfulness, it's not going to change tomorrow. Yep. That's so good. That's so good. It's so encouraging because you go, man, I wish I had been educated like actor, you know, whatever. But then you go, Oh, who cares? I'm not going to throw a pity party about it for myself. God's providence is a real thing. And I learned this when I did in a stream of my family history so I'm just going to get to work. I'm not going to throw myself a pity party. I'm going to get to work. My, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, this has been an awesome conversation with Pastor Brian Sauvé. Brian, thanks for joining us. Hopefully we'll get to have you on the show again. 
rock and roll. Thanks for thanks for having me on, man. Again, special thanks to Pastor Brian Sauve. That's the Refuge Church in Ogden, Utah. Follow Brian. That's B-R-I-A-N underscore S-A-U-V-E on Twitter. Thanks for listening to the Hardman Podcast. For more on the topic of masculinity and biblical sexuality, be sure to check out my website, Sign up for my newsletter at ericcon.com. That's E-R-I-C-C-O-N-N.com. You can follow me on Instagram or Twitter. My handle there is E-R-I-C underscore C-O-N-N. Questions or feedback, send them to me at any one of those outlets. And until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. <laughs>